our Pastor John Lieb in the goldenrod sweater. That was good. I've got so much candy up here. By the way, this, this had nothing to do with Valentine's Day. This was sponsored by Whetstone Dental. Let's hear it for... No, I'm just kidding. It's, Joel isn't here. Joel isn't here today. No, that, that's how we keep him in business. He, he hides to our church, so we want to keep, we want to keep sending people in there to get their teeth drilled. Okay. Hey, we're, if nothing else, we're honest here. All right? Gosh, you right over your head. You're supposed to track him here with... Okay. Hey, uh, Eric, there's some outlines back there right in front of you. Would you pass those around? I don't want to give them to you because you would read them beforehand. Uh, what I want to talk about today, I title this teaching, Partying with Jesus. And it's a, I know it's a bit of a provocative title. And you go, Partying with Jesus. That isn't exactly sort of two ideas that you hear in the same sentence too often. And the trouble is, as I want to show you, I want to, we're going to read a story, one of the most familiar stories in the gospel about Jesus. And it's about partying. And it's actually about partying with Jesus. Now, I know we got to define, because some of you, I know your minds. You're going, are you talking about partying, or are you talking about partying? You know, it's, a few of you are like, okay, you get it. The rest of you, you're just dishonest. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? You get that, the boom, point there. So if you have a Bible with you, open it. And uh, by the way, under the chair seat in front of you, there are paperback Bibles look like this. Uh, looks like this, sorry. And we're going to be reading at page 737. Very famous story. Jesus is at a wedding. And he's actually at, the story is about this party that happens after the wedding. It's a, it's a, it's a festival, a reception. John 2, verse 1, page 737 in your loner Bibles. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six sewn water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw out Draw some out and take it to the master of the... They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after you've had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, let me just, just in case you don't totally follow this story, let me just tell you a couple of points that will help you get it. It's a real simple idea that Jesus is communicating. He's invited to this wedding and this reception, and in, in his culture, wedding receptions were just huge events. Most wedding receptions would go on for a week. The whole village would participate. It was marriage, weddings were very important, Family was very important. This was an opportunity for the community to, to celebrate something very, very special. Problem was, the, the bride and the groom were responsible for providing all the food and all the wine for the wedding. And if you ran out of wine or food during the, the, the festival, the party, the reception, 
it wasn't just sort of disappointing. It was considered a social disaster, and it would be a cloud that would hang over a couple's life for the rest of their lives in that village. Because it's like saying you don't care or respect the people. Because, you know, they brought gifts, they're going to they're gonna support you. Villages were very much more, in, in that community, integrated and connected than we are today. And so there was this, all this reciprocity that was a part of their life. And so in the middle of the wedding, in the middle of the wedding feast, the wine runs out. And Mary, Jesus' mother, says, hey, Jesus would do something about this. She already had begun to grasp who he was, although she probably didn't, like none of them did at that point, really understand who he was. And so Jesus says, okay, he, he does this miracle. Now, it says, John said here, that this revealed his glory to, to anybody that had eyes to see. And we're not going to look at that one point a whole lot. That'll be the last point I want to make, is that some of the people got it and some of the people didn't. And that's a curious thing about spiritual reality is that, that there are people that have spiritual reality staring them in the face and one person will just go, oh my, unbelievable. And the other person will go, what, what are you talking about? They don't see anything important, anything that stands out, anything that has any relevance to them. That's what happened here. So the thing is, and, and you see it in your outline, the point I want you to take home is this. Celebration, partying, is central to remembering and displaying God's extravagant grace. And when people read this story, they have a real hard time with the idea that Jesus made water into wine. Because a lot of people will say, well, certainly it must have been grape juice, like really good grape juice, but it can't have been an alcoholic beverage. That is, that's an impossible interpretation. That they, they did not drink grape juice. They drank fermented wine, what we call wine. Jesus turned water into wine. That doesn't condone drunkenness or you know, anything that, that, that to do with excess, but it is inescapable point that Jesus gave them, at that point, the best wine they'd ever had. At a time where people were used to serving the cheapest wine, because people, you know, they had, they'd already drunk a bunch of wine, and they, it wasn't just that they were drunk, they probably weren't drunk, but they, their palate was used to wine. And they would bring out the, you know, the newer vintage, and the newer, and the newer, and the, the poorer. And it was just a way of, of stretching their resources. But Jesus did something for the bride and groom that, was, that would have changed their lives. Because he gave them enough wine to finish the party, but he also gave them a gift. They could sell that wine, and that would have been a gift that would have impacted them for the rest of their lives. This all happened at a party. Now, we need to rethink a bunch of things in light of this. And I'm just going to suggest three today. There's three really simple implications to this that require us to rethink life, require us to rethink our mission as Christians, and require us to rethink the whole idea of religion. And so life, let, let, me, let me tell you something about parties. Celebration, parties, banquets, festivals are the symbol in the Bible, the most repeated often used symbol in the Bible for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a party. I'm going to let that just sit for a minute. If, if, you, if, if people even understand what the kingdom of God is, hardly anybody immediately associates the kingdom of God with a party where they drink wine, 
and eat lots of food and dance and celebrate and just enjoy good company and, and good food for days and weeks. The whole book of John that we're reading here, this whole gospel of John, the context of this, this is the first miracle Jesus does. The Jewish people in their covenant with God were commanded by God three times a year to have these week-long festivals of partying and celebration where everybody was supposed to come to one place, they were supposed to save money, and they were just supposed to do their own little Mardi Gras without all the gross things that happen at Mardi Gras. Have you ever been to Mardi Gras? I've been to Mardi Gras. It's, it stretches the imagination what happens there. The Jewish people were commanded by God three times a year to remember his goodness by celebrating. The very fabric of their lives, of their communities, their, their outlook on life was shaped by the fact that God likes to party, that he likes to show up at parties, that partying is his idea, celebration is a kingdom thing. The book of John, is th this whole book is structured around seven miracles. Guess where each of the miracles happened at one of those festivals. This was just the first one. Starting to get the idea? Is it kind of making your head go, I don't know, I'm still not quite ready to kind of associate partying with faith. I can't quite, you know, eh, you know, can't quite get my arms around that yet because I've got too many... Too much baggage about that. They were, this is an, this would not have been a surprise to these Jewish people who in the first century, or anybody in the first century who read this. They didn't have a problem with the idea of celebrating and faith being integrated and being integral. Didn't. We, in our pietistic, religious approach to relationship with God, have jettisoned that and we've lost something that's really important, that's really crucial. And in doing that, we have distorted the image of God as generous and good. Because we just say, God is a miser. If you're having too much fun, he is really PO'd. He does, is not happy if you're having any fun. In fact, angels are, the, are, are God's fun police. You can't read the Bible and take it seriously and not see that celebration central to remembering and displaying God's extravagant grace. I'm hoping, and I'm not going to make that point any more than that. It's in the little outline I gave you. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing, one, one other point is, the whole messianic theme in the Old Testament, where God said through all these prophets, the Messiah is going to come, over and over, the Messiah, when he came, would bring these images. He, he would create this environment of abundance and celebration. In fact, over and over, they even used this image that the mountains would flow with new wine. Now, I know people who think that's a party, right? Because when the snow melts or rain comes down, right, you see these streams. And whenever, in a country like Palestine, when it rained, you know what that meant, right? I mean, that meant the crops are watered, the animals are fed, life. And so when God said, I'm going to pour wine down, it was like taking it to another level. Like, this is abundance. Like, there are the, 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 the mountains that we, on which we plant our vines, our vineyards, are so alive that wine runs down from the mountains. That's like, that's the abundance. So when the Messiah shows up, and the Jewish people knew when the Messiah showed up, the wine would flow. 
You guys aren't as excited about this as I am. I can tell. <laughs> and, and I don't even drink. <laughs> can you see it? It's this picture that those people would have just gone, oh, oh, we can't wait for that to come. Can't wait for that to happen. So in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, life is meant to be full of celebration. He's forgiven us of our sins. He provides for us. He protects us. He's going to to establish justice in this world. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to dry the tear of every person. There's going to be no more sickness and sorrow and pain. And we're getting a foretaste of it now, and we can celebrate now. That's the picture of what the gospel says is, is our birthright. It's our inheritance in Christ. So we have to rethink life. We have to rethink the idea of what life is all about. The abundant life looks more like, it's supposed to look more like a celebration than what a lot of us think. And I think we've set our sights way too low. Second, if celebration is central, we need to rethink our mission. Jesus revealed his glory, and he made disciples at a party in the everyday stuff of life. Jesus revealed his glory, and he made disciples at a party in the everyday stuff of life. And we've already established that, that parties and celebrations were just a part of the rhythms of their life. Jesus carried forward his mission in those rhythms. And celebration was, I think, central. This should help settle the perpetual problem of how do I make disciples when I'm so doggone busy? How do I share my faith? How do I help people come to faith in Jesus when I'm so busy? And we, we have these options that just don't work. We go, there's my life, and I want to add mission to it. I can't. Mission is this all-consuming big thing. Life and mission don't work. You'll, you, when you try to add those together, you're going to give up on one of them. And so then you go, okay, I'm going to stop doing life, and I'm just going to do mission. Then you burn out, and you, you know, you, your, your family struggles, work struggles. You, you can't sustain it. And then you go back, I'm just going to do life and forget about mission. But you're a follower of Jesus. Mission is supposed to be part of your life. What Jesus shows us here is the key is we're to life on mission, in the everyday stuff of life, at parties. Real simple point. It's, if celebration is central to our mission at Vineyard, Displaying God's extravagant grace, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be known for two things. Simple takeaway from this. So if you go, John, what do you want us to do as a result of seeing that celebration is central? Here's two things. We should be throwing the best parties in the name of Jesus for every occasion possible. You got over your cold, let's throw a party, right? We'd be partying all winter right now. You got a new apartment, there's a party. You got new hubcaps, there's a party. Where we're experiencing the goodness of God in our lives, let's celebrate it. And here's the thing. Other people don't get celebrated near as much as they're meant to. And so we can throw parties for other people and invite them in. And we, we take our friends and go, we're going to celebrate. You just got a new job. You bought a new house. You got a new kid. Whatever it is. Big, small, we can celebrate things. And what it does is it, it, it brings the kingdom into our day-to-day -day lives. We remember and then we display it. Now this stretches us a little bit because this sounds like, this sounds a little too good to be true, John. This sounds a little bit, you know, like, I don't know where you're taking us, but I'm kind of afraid. It's, I'm, I'm nervous about this. You, you know, you, you, it, this is one of those things. You've just got to go back through and read the Bible and see the parties. The parties from beginning to end, celebrating the festivals, the, the, the life that God means for all of us to have, believers and non-believers. But let's show people, let's be 
as one person told me, let's be a trailer for the kingdom of God. Let's give people a foretaste of what it is that we're inviting them into. And so let's throw parties in the name of Jesus, intentionally. Second, let's be the best guests in the name of Jesus at other people's parties. Because Jesus didn't throw this party. He was just a guest, but brought the kingdom into that party. And you're not going to go to a party where there's not some point, someone's life and some circumstances where they run out of wine. I don't mean literally they run out of wine, but maybe that's one of the things that you'll do. Maybe they run out of guacamole. Maybe they run, maybe they're, you know, the music goes sideways. Whatever it might be, the best guess, bring the kingdom into that party with your presence there. Invite Jesus to, to join you. Again, this is just the first of, of the structure of the book of John of seven miracles at different festivals where Jesus showed up and he made them better. He fulfilled the festival. So, sorry, I lost my place. We need to be party-throwing and party-going disciples. But one word of caution, all right? I'm going to throw a word of caution in here. Kids, don't practice this at home. Partying with Jesus doesn't mean partying with Jesus, all right? Over and over and over, in this context of enjoying alcoholic beverages, the Jewish people, like all people, recognize impairment and drunkenness is destructive. It is destructive to the celebration that you are having. It's destructive to your life. It's destructive to the fabric of community. And, and like Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Being drunk, being impaired, is a counterfeit of the presence of God. And it's a destructive counterfeit because of what it does to us. It impairs us. And when we're impaired, we're going to do things we regret. And we're going to do things that hurt us and other people. That is a fact of history. That is an indisputable factor of history. So wine is one thing. Recreational marijuana is a whole different thing. I am all for our country exploring the medicinal uses of marijuana because there, there really are more and more proven benefits for tetrocannabinoids. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But recreational marijuana is as destructive as, as, broke, as drunkenness. It impairs in the exact same way in the brain. And we've embraced the bandwagon of recreational use of marijuana. And I'm just telling you, it is, it is in the same category that God denounces drunkenness. And he says, if, if you're going to keep drinking in light of God telling you not to, those who drink that way are not going to enter the kingdom. There's a warning with this. Just like other kinds of misbehavior that we decide, I'm just going to keep doing this. There's a point you're going to burn the bridge. Don't keep doing that. And you will already have done tremendous damage by the time you get to that point. But there's a warning that's spoken over and over and over. You're going to burn your own house down and you're going to take other people along with you. If So I want to stop here before I finish, make the last point. Question. Not just about marijuana. I don't, I mean, that might not be controversial to you. I smoked a lot of pot growing up. I did. When I got saved, I stopped. I did a lot of things to excess when I was young. And I, I thank God. You know, I, I, I clung to counterfeits because I didn't have the real. When I found the real, I began to let go of the counterfeits. So I don't want to make my, any questions you have or, or comments. And, if, and please, no anecdotes. If you have a, a question or comment, thoughts, stun silence. Corey comments. Yeah, Karis, good. That's good. So Corey said, 
The word thank, thanks, give thanks, and give praise, which we're commanded to do both those, both the words thanks and praise in Greek are rooted in the word grace. And the word for grace, the root of the word for grace is joy. So if you're experiencing grace, you should be experiencing joy. And then if you're experiencing that, you should be grateful and you should give praise to God and praise to people appropriately. So we can bring that attitude to every single celebration we go to and not, we shouldn't feel bad about feeling good. We should be able to go to someone else's celebration and rejoice and give thanks that some, whatever, the, whatever the celebration is about, God, thank you that, that that's from you. Whether anybody realizes it or not, I can go into that setting and I can express that gratitude. And maybe nobody else is towards God. It will stand out. It will bring the atmosphere of heaven into that that place. Other questions? Good question. Evie, when, when you said, how are you, I thought you were going to say, how do you get rid of people who won't leave the party? No. <laughs> so your question is, it's complicated when you serve alcohol at a party because there are people who, who can't drink alcohol. They choose not to. And then there's people who don't think you should choose alcohol. I mean, you should drink alcohol because it's wrong. My answer would be, if I have a party and I'm inviting people and I'm going to serve alcohol, I say, we're going to have alcohol at this party. If you have a problem with alcohol, and, it, you know, and maybe in, in your recovery you're not at that point where you can be around it, don't come. You've got to treat people like adults. If you treat people like adults, they're more likely to add like adult, act like adults. If, if I'm telling people, because if, if I have a party, I'm going to probably serve alcohol. Like I said, I don't drink, but yeah, I come from a family of people that abuse substances. So I, don't, I abuse substances. I just don't want to do it anymore, and so I don't start. Because when I start things, it's hard to stop things. So I just don't even get started. Uh, however, my wife... No, just kidding. <laughs> I made that joke once, and she, she didn't think it was very funny. So, uh, But that's what I do. I just think you advertise up front, and then you let people be adults. And if people want to change your mind, and maybe you have... I, my conviction is, and I, I think I can support it in Scripture, drinking alcohol is not wrong. If people think it is, you honor their conviction. And th- th- there's, a, there's a divide there you can't... You can't, you're never going to bridge unless both people are going to be generous. And so I'm not trying to convince people who think it's wrong to drink that they should drink. That's something you've got to work out between you and God if you're here. I respect that. I've told you, I don't drink. And, I, and, and people, there have been people, I've been to plenty of parties where people go, hey, you know, here, have a beer. And you know, I'm holding a can of Coke. And they want me to drink a beer, and I go, I don't drink. And they go, oh, come on, man, you can't enjoy a party without a, whatever, they're, they're, you know, whatever they have in both their hands. And I just go hey, I just don't drink. Thank you, though. And, you know, at a certain point, the third or fourth time, I'm just looking at him. Really? Really? You don't get it? I, I'm not going to drink. Thank you for offering me. I, I, the only thing I'm going to drink is this Coke. And like Rick, I do drink Coke. Now, Rick and I have a Coke-Pepsi thing going. I'm a Pepsi drinker. But that's, that's how I would do it. And I don't, that may not be how you do it. You, you may want to have an alcohol-free party. That's fine. If you want to do that because you have friends that you want to invite and you know they won't come unless you don't have alcohol, hey, you can enjoy a party without alcohol, right? I mean, you've got to be able to do that. Other questions? Maybe one more. Ola. Sure, that's a great question, Ola. Very good question. If Ola's asking me a question without getting into it. You're grieving. If you have a big loss and someone invites you to a party, is it inappropriate for you to, you know, to drink or to even go to a party when you know, you're in a season of mourning? 
the, I think the easiest way to answer that is, is grief and mourning uh, is a process you go through over a long period of time. It isn't something you just stay in. And so you, you cycle in and out of it. And I, the only time I think that it's inappropriate to celebrate is when you're trying to avoid grieving. Just like sometimes when people drink, they feel so bad, I'm going to drink to drown my sorrows. That's wrong. Face your sorrows. Face your grief. Deal with it. Be there. That's, I think that's the, that's the simplest litmus test is when you need to grieve, you grieve. But when you're not grieving, you can celebrate because you have to live your life. And people, you know, Tanya would say, Ola, I want you to be happy. But she would also say, Ola, I don't want you to try to bury your pain in drinking. And that would be wise for any of us to say to anybody we know is don't avoid the things that you need to face. And if you're doing something to do that, which we all do, we all cope that way, and, we, and we've got to learn not to, then, then that's when drinking is wrong. So, so you probably have other questions. I'll hang around afterwards. I, we want to close in this, this point. So if celebration is simple, we need to rethink how we look at life because God made celebration for us. If celebration is central, we need to rethink our mission, that we're supposed to do our mission in celebration and other rhythms of life. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this is the first of six rhythms of life we're going to explain that are context that, that we're all involved in all the time that we can do our mission as, as believers, making disciples in that without adding anything to our life. But the third thing is, is if, if celebration is central and what Jesus showed us here is we need to rethink religion. So mostly this story is very concrete, but there's a symbolism in it that they would have gotten that maybe we don't get. The six Jewish stone, the, the, the stone pots that, had tw- that held 20 to 30 gallons of water, they were empty. They used them for this rich, ritual washing. The Jewish people had this very highly developed sense of conscience that God's holy and that when we sin, it separates us from God and we're defiled. And so they had this prescribed ritual. This is literally how it happened. They would take an egg and they would break it in half, and to be cleansed in this ritual way, you dip the egg in water, and you poured the water over your hands this way, then you turned your hands over, they poured the water over your hands on top, and you were cleansed. But you had to do it over and over and over, sometimes over and over, some traditions before each meal, before each meal, and after each meal. When you got up in the morning, it just became this ritual thing. And it was an attempt to say, God, and because God gave them this sense that they needed to be cleansed. And some of these became very, you know, complicated systems, but the idea that we need to be cleansed is, it's a universal uh, observation that God is holy and special and we're not. And in order to have a relationship with him, we need to deal with our stuff. And this was one of the ways that they did it, but it, it served a purpose until Jesus came along. And then he fulfilled it But he did what, on the inside of us, what the external cleansing could never do, really change our heart. Because you can have your hands washed (laughs) over and over and over, and it can have some impact and meaning, but you know it doesn't change your heart. But Jesus came along, and when he changed the purpose of the washing to celebrating, it was a sign the Messiah was there, the Messiah who was going to save them from their sins and give them the Spirit and change their hearts, some of them saw it and went, that's what I've been waiting for. 
I believed. Others just were oblivious. They didn't get it. They got it later. Some never got it. But the picture was of this invitation. And a lot of us have, have been raised around religion in different forms. And by the mercy of God, all religion has some truth in it. The Jewish people had profound truth, but it pointed somewhere. They all were taught from their earliest days that this is, not, this is adequate, but it's not enough. It will do for now, but something better is coming along. And so believing is this doorway into relationship. But believing is not believing about Jesus. It's believing in Him, in Him as a person where you put all that you are on the line and say, I trust you and who you are and what you've done, Jesus, to take care of me. And I'm surrendering everything to you. And when Jesus did that miracle, there was a metaphor at work where halfway through the party or at some point, some percentage way through the party in the week, the wine ran out. Whatever our salvation scheme is, it reaches a point where it's not effective anymore. And then Jesus is there and he says, I want to make this work. I want your life to work. But God, trust me. You have to believe in me and who I am and what I'm going to do for you, that that is going to be the foundation of your life from now on. And some of them did that. They saw what he offered was completely outside what they'd ever seen before. Who turns water into wine? It wasn't a party trick. It was a profound sign. It was just the first sign. But a sign points somewhere. And so maybe you're at this point in your life where you have a kind of faith, and maybe even in the Christian religion, and your understanding is, I try, I got to be a good person. I got to believe the right things. That's the way that God wants me to live. That's how He wants me to please Him. And God says, That's not a bad motivation, but it, it, it won't do the job. I have a new and living way that's not a ritual, that's not about your responsibility. It's about what Jesus did. And when you put your faith in Him, this relationship is born with you and God, and a lot of us already get this, but we can lapse back into religion so easily and, and begin to rely on this observance, this put your hands out, get your hands washed, pray prayers the right way, do the right thing. All that stuff is inadequate. It's not bad. It's inadequate for the problem we have and the gap between us and God. Jesus bridges that gap permanently for all time for anybody that wants him. So I want to do two things just to close. One is, I want to invite you, if you want to follow Jesus, it's just a matter of recognizing the significance of what was in this story for you and responding in your heart and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out. There's things in my life now, and I've, I've been a Christian since I was 18, and so I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was because I have to get my calculator out to actually add up the years, but it's been a few years. And I am still surprised at what I don't know. No matter what I learn, no matter how much I encounter Jesus, there's more of him. That's normal. It doesn't in any way diminish what happened to me long ago when I first started this journey. That's, that's the nature of God. He's just amazing and awesome. And we know him through Jesus. So if you want to say yes to him, you just say yes to him. That's how you start. You understand what this is about. I'm letting go of religion. I'm letting go of all the other ways that I've tried to approach God. And I'm just going to say yes to Jesus. That's what he's looking for. That is belief in him. That is committing your life to him. Secondly, we're going to pray for people up here because I think there's, there, the Lord, there's a moment that we're in where God says, I've saved the best for now. I've got something really amazing for you now. Not, you know, 
got to wait for a few weeks or some, you know, the, the stars align or something, right? Or, or I get it together. <laughs> i got to get it together enough for the best to be saved for now because I don't have it together. It's not measured by us having it together. These people didn't have it together. The bride and groom blew it. They were about to have their lives ruined. And Jesus stepped in, not only met the immediate need, he left them with this gift of all this wine that they could sell that would be a, you know, a down payment on some property or whatever. Jesus wants to do that in your life now. During worship, I tell you, I think that God was touching people that are here. And, I'm gonna, and, and I think some of you, he started touching you physically in your body, and there was healing that was going on. But some of you, I think maybe the healing started, and you just need to respond and say yes, and exercise your faith towards him, and allow him to come and finish it. Here, here's what it was. This is what came to my mind. There were, there are some of us here, I said this last week, and I thought we were supposed to pray for people, but nobody responded, so everyone's, <laughs> you know, there's like, I don't need any prayer. <laughs> if you've had this, this, this cold that just won't go away, I don't mean maybe all you have is just, you know, the cough, the dry cough. There were, there were some of you here that you experienced, started experiencing the symptoms lifting during worship. They were starting to lift. And some of you, you might, if you check right now, they're gone. God touched you. He touched you. When, you. when you draw near to him, he draws near to you. And sometimes when he draws near, it's amazing what happens. So if that's you, uh, if you haven't, if it hasn't all lifted, I want you to come up and we're going to pray for you. Secondly, there's people here. I saw a picture of, I don't know if it was gallstones, a duct with stones in it. It could be kidney stones, could be gallstones. But I heard the Lord say, I'm going to dissolve those stones. You're going to pass them without pain. So I don't know who that is that has, you know, that problem. I know, I think your, your gallbladder's over here, but wherever your kidney stones are, they're somewhere. Uh, and if that's you, God, I believe the Lord's going to cause those to pass or dissolve, and there's not going to be any pain. Third, there's somebody here, and maybe more than one person, when you look down, you've had this problem. Looking down, you get dizzy. I don't know what that is. But if you had that problem, I would encourage you to, to test it and see if you're already healed. But if you're not, we want to pray for you. And fourth, there's somebody here who's had, you've had some, this is the word that came to my mind, pelvic inflammation. That there's some kind of pelvic inflammation that you've had. And, you know, that might be awkward to, to ask for prayer. So, you know, if it's a man, you want to ask for a guy to pray for you or a woman come up and ask a woman to pray for you. But I think some, somebody here that, that that started leaving. It might have some symptoms like pain or something else. Uh, but it was like this area, like around your waist, front. Uh, and there will be other things. And I, what I want to ask you to do is, if God was going to do a miracle for you today, what would it be for you? Not for some loved one or, you know, like peace in the world, like you're a beauty contestant. What would he do for you? 